Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Paramedics in Richardson, Texas, weren't sure what to expect as they approached a pleasant, mundane house on Loganwood Drive. They'd received a report of a potentially injured woman, but there weren't any obvious signs of commotion outside. They got closer, noticing the front door was cracked open. They knocked and, when there was no reply, carefully walked inside. In the living room, they found a four-year-old boy on the couch, watching Sesame Street with a bowl of cereal in his lap. He wasn't happy to see them. He told the EMTs they weren't wanted there. His dad was apparently going to beat them up. The paramedics asked where the boy's mother was. He didn't reply, but his eyes darted toward a hallway. As the paramedics neared the bedroom at the end of the hall, they started to hear another noise over the television, a muffled, guttural sound. As experienced first responders, they assumed they could handle whatever was on the other side of that door. But no one was prepared for what they were about to see. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This week, we'll look at a 1980s love triangle that turned into a criminal investigation. When Dr. Peter Galliunas met his future wife, Roseanne, it was love at first sight. But after they got married, things started to unravel. When another lover entered the mix, all-out chaos ensued. Next time, new allegations bring a cold case back to life and lead investigators on an international manhunt. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. We all occasionally wish our lives were more exciting, but most never actually seek out the dramatic twists of fortune, soap opera love affairs, or dangerous liaisons we might imagine. By and large, the majority of people live pretty quiet, conventional lives. Today's story is not about most people. Things started out ordinary enough, though. Roseanne Agostinelli was a diligent nurse at a suburban Boston hospital. Normally, when she was on the night shift, she focused solely on the job at hand. But when Dr. Peter Galliunas was working there in 1977, she found herself drawn to him. The moment Roseanne saw Galliunas, her heart skipped a beat. For the rest of her shift, she couldn't stop stealing glances at him, catching his eye as they went about their duties. 
Their game of cat and mouse continued throughout the night, but by the end of the shift, Galliunas still hadn't made a move. So Roseanne took matters into her own hands. With a coy smile, she sidled up to the doctor who was around 30 years old. She didn't say a word, just handed him a folded piece of paper. Inside, she'd written her phone number and the words, call me sometime. It worked like a charm. Before we dive into the psychology here, please note, I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. Some people assume men tend to make the first move in a relationship, but the truth is a bit more complicated. According to a 1989 study by psychologist Kay Grammer in heterosexual relationships, women initiate first contact more often. The study found that the moves women make tend to be more subtle than men. Fleeting eye contact, head tossing, smiling wide. These actions encourage men to approach. But because they're so understated, the men might believe themselves to be the instigators. Roseanne's first move was a bit more direct than this, but it certainly got the job done. Roseanne and Galliunas embarked on a passionate love affair. Galliunas found Roseanne's personality intoxicating. She was outgoing, adventurous, and full of life. By the end of 1977, they couldn't take their hands off each other. They met up everywhere from shopping malls to Boston's finest restaurants. And after months of bliss, Dr. Galliunas decided to make an honest woman out of Roseanne. But he couldn't possibly have predicted Roseanne's response to his proposal, which was to confess she was already married. Roseanne's husband was her high school sweetheart, but she reassured Galliunas that things were over between them. She had recently filed for divorce. Galliunas, who had also been married before, breathed a sigh of relief. Soon, the two of them could be together for real. They eagerly started planning out their new life. The first step turned out to be a move across the country. Galliunas got a job teaching at the prestigious Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas. Roseanne secured a job in the burn unit of a nearby hospital. And so they set off on the nearly 2,000 mile journey to the Lone Star State. That was only the beginning. Shortly after the move, the couple tied the knot and Roseanne unexpectedly became pregnant. Life was moving pretty fast for the Galliunases and it took a toll on their relationship. Roseanne hated Texas. She was hot and lonely in her new home. Her family, a lively Italian bunch, was back in New England and she missed them terribly. She spent much of her time just planning trips to go back and see them. To make matters worse, Galliunas was getting busier. Around this time, he started a medical equipment distribution business. That was on top of his duties at the medical school, and soon he was working 100-hour weeks. Roseanne tried not to blame her husband for leaving her isolated, but as time went by, it became more and more difficult. The tipping point came on April 18, 1979. Dr. Galliunas was in Chicago on business, so Roseanne was home alone. She was having trouble sleeping. No matter how she tossed and turned, she kept feeling painful spasms. 
She figured it couldn't be labor pains since she wasn't due for another five weeks. But Roseanne's baby did things on his own schedule. Galeunas got the call around midnight. Roseanne was in labor. He had to get back to Dallas. The budding father raced to the airport but couldn't get on a flight until the morning. When he finally made it to the hospital on the medical center campus, he was late to the birth of his son, Peter III, by two and a half hours. After missing such an important moment, Dr. Galeunas swore to himself that he'd cut back on work to focus on his new family, but the resolution was quickly forgotten. Galeunas' business flourished and soon, it was grossing $4 million annually. With their financial future secured, Galeunas encouraged Roseanne to take a break from her nursing job and stay at home with their son. Given how little time Galeunas had to spend with the boy, Roseanne reluctantly agreed. But now that she didn't have work to fill her time, she became even more miserable. To add to her difficulty, Galeunas started to have problems with her parenting. He didn't like that she bought commercial baby food rather than making it herself. He was also upset that she enrolled little Peter in daycare at just one year old. He thought Roseanne should spend all her time looking after the baby, while Roseanne wanted their son to spend time around other children. Just because she was lonely didn't mean her son had to be as well. As the 1980s dawned, there started to be days where Roseanne hardly even saw her husband at all. He was buried in work and all the stress led him to start drinking heavily. Soon enough, he was downing several six packs of beer at work. When he was home, he always seemed to have a gin and tonic in his hand. By 1982, Roseanne was begging him to get help, but he refused. Alone and unhappy, Roseanne considered divorce. For his part, Galeunas could tell Roseanne was unsatisfied, but he couldn't let go of the business that was making him rich or the drinking that was helping him cope. So, instead of spending more time with his family, Galeunas threw money at the problem. He became obsessed with the idea of building his family a new house, it's unclear whether he actually believed this would solve his marital problems or if he just wanted another status symbol. Regardless, he interviewed some local builders and ultimately hired one he liked, a gregarious man named Larry Ayler. Ayler was professional, but he also had a bit of flair. He was a dapper dresser, donning the sharp suits and polished shoes of a banker or Wall Street mogul. He seemed like a man with ambition, which might have been what Galeunas liked about him. That and his amicable nature. Ayler was clearly the life of the party. He and his wife Joy ran a construction business together. He built the houses and Joy was an interior designer. In early January 1983, Galeunas invited the couple over to discuss plans and construction costs. The two men got along famously. Ayler chirped about building plans and construction costs, and Galeunas was happy to listen. Their wives, however, mostly sat quietly and pretended not to be bored. Neither of them seemed particularly interested in anything their husbands had to say. 
At the end of the night, when the Ehlers left the house, Joy remarked that their new client's wife was very pretty and very unhappy. Planning continued over the next few months. Galeunas remained wrapped up in his work, relying on Roseanne to make the choices about their house, like the fixtures and paint colors. But as construction began, Roseanne started to disengage from her husband more than ever. Though their marriage had been bad for years, the couple's sex life had always remained good. But suddenly, around March, Galeunas noticed that Roseanne stopped showing interest in him. This grabbed his attention like nothing else before. It seemed he could ignore his wife's loneliness, but not if she was disinterested in the bedroom. As time passed and Galeunas grew more sexually frustrated, he started to suspect Roseanne was having an affair. He confronted his wife and she denied it, but Galeunas couldn't let it go. The thought of her with another man consumed him. He somehow upped his drinking again and started to share his suspicions with family and colleagues. To his disappointment, everyone had the same response. Get your paranoia under control and spend more time with your family. But Galeunas refused. He knew something was wrong. All he needed was proof. One night, Galeunas got home from work late. Roseanne and little Peter were asleep. They hardly ever waited up for him anymore. And that's what he was counting on. The doctor snuck down to the laundry room and rifled through the dirty clothes. Finally, he found what he was looking for a pair of his wife's panties. In the hospital lab the following day, he took samples of the stains, then looked at them under a microscope. What he saw seemed to confirm his darkest fears. Sperm. Galeunas confronted Roseanne with his evidence, and Roseanne told him he was being paranoid. She denied having an affair, but then hit him with a bombshell. She was moving out. She needed space to figure out what she wanted, to rediscover herself. Maybe she'd even go back to work part-time. Galeunas was floored, but Roseanne had made up her mind. In May, she rented a house in nearby Richardson. Once she had her own space, Roseanne grew even more distant. Rather than try to reconcile, though, Galeunas continued fixating on his adultery theory. He searched her purse for clues, hired a private investigator to follow her around, and on a whim, wiretapped his own phone in case Roseanne used it when stopping by his place. Mere days after installing the recording device, Galeunas checked the tape. To his shock, he overheard his wife speaking with another man. The two flirted incessantly and both complained about their spouses. At the end of the call, in a more cheerful voice than he'd heard in a long time, Roseanne said, I love you, Larry Ayler. Galeunas had his answer. His wife was having an affair with his builder. Coming up, the Galeunas-Ayler love triangle gets violent. 
Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults. Next on our series, a four-part deep dive into the religious movement known as the Moonies. Sushi, mass weddings, political coups. Discover the many business ventures, beliefs, and scandals of this headline-making sect. This is one special you do not want to miss. You can also catch up on hundreds of classic episodes and new ones each week by following Cults free on Spotify. Find out what turns a natural-born leader into a vessel for wreaking havoc. Enjoy a new episode of Cults every Tuesday, free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Dr. Peter Galliunis was getting drunk. It was May 1983, and he'd just found evidence that his wife, Roseanne, was cheating on him. He sat in his darkened living room, downing beer after beer, playing the conversation he'd secretly recorded over and over in his mind. Hearing his wife say, I love you to another man was tough. Galliunis wallowed in his sadness for some time, but as the beer cans piled up, his sadness started to warp into anger. He picked up the phone and dialed a familiar number. The moment Larry Ayler answered, Galliunis started yelling, cursing, accusing him of stealing his wife. And for the first time since Galliunis met him, Ayler dropped his friendly demeanor. He screamed right back at Galliunis, telling him that if he ever called there again, he'd knock him out. Galliunis wasn't satisfied. Days later, he showed up at Ayler's front door, demanding to speak to Roseanne. Ayler told him Roseanne wasn't there, but Galliunis wouldn't leave until Ayler allowed him to search the apartment. Once he was satisfied, Galliunis begrudgingly left. The next day, he drove to Richardson to confront Roseanne with his evidence, including the tape of her private phone conversation and a piece of paper he'd found in her purse with Ayler's phone number on it. He also had testimony from a neighbor saying that Ayler stopped by Roseanne's house almost daily. Despite all of this, Roseanne continued to deny the affair. Galliunis was obsessed with tracking Roseanne, following her every move. Stalking an ex-partner is unfortunately not uncommon, and studies show that our attitudes about the behavior change depending on the relationship between the stalker and their victim. A man who stalks a stranger is perceived as completely in the wrong, whereas a man who stalks his estranged wife might be perceived as entitled to do so. Obviously, that kind of thinking is flawed, but it may explain why no one in Galliunis's life seemed too alarmed by his behavior. Roseanne had denied the affair, but Galliunis's suspicions seemed to be confirmed the following week when both she and Larry Ayler filed for divorce, days apart, using the same lawyer. With his worst fears realized, the next few months were a blur for Galliunis. He started drinking half a liter of vodka every day. He reportedly lost around 40 pounds. Colleagues at the hospital began to whisper about him, the doctor who wandered the halls like a zombie. By August, it was apparent to everyone that Galliunis was in a freefall. 
Meanwhile, Roseanne's life had dramatically improved. When she wasn't looking after her son, she spent most of her time with Larry Ayler. The two were head over heels for each other. Roseanne even called her sister to gush about the new man she was seeing. A man, she said, paid attention to her and treated her well. She couldn't wait to put her marriage to Galliunas behind her, but the fact that they had a child together meant she'd never truly be free of him. Roseanne initially filed for joint custody of their son Peter, but as she watched her husband spiral, she started to worry about her son's safety. One day, when the doctor came to pick up little Peter, the child actually ran away from him. So Roseanne told Galliunas she'd changed her mind. She wanted sole custody of little Peter. The decision was a crushing blow to the doctor. He'd already lost his wife, and now he was losing his son too. Rather than continue to wallow, he decided to do something about it. Galliunas got his act together for his son. He stopped drinking and started getting back into shape. He focused on work, considered going into private practice to spend more time with his boy, and strategized with his lawyer. Those moves eventually led him to call to someone he viewed as a potential ally, Joy Ayler. Galliunas watched Joy closely as she sat on his living room couch, listening to the tape of Roseanne and Ayler flirting. Just like the first time they'd met, Joy didn't say much. She sat, calmly listening to her husband gush over another woman, seeming almost completely unaffected. Her only real response was to ask Eunus to replay the parts of the recording where Ayler criticized her. She didn't seem surprised or hurt by his words. It was almost like she'd heard it all before. When the tape finished, Galliunas offered to make her a copy of the recording for her lawyer to use in her own divorce case, but Joy wasn't interested, either in the tape or in working together. She told him she just wanted it all to be over. Galliunas was disappointed. He didn't fully understand it, but respected Joy's wishes and steeled himself to continue his legal battle without her help. On the other side of the Galliunas custody battle, Roseanne was having her own difficulties. She started receiving constant hang-up calls at the house she rented by herself. It was scary. Things got so bad that she instructed her son, now four years old, not to answer the phone by himself. Then, in late September 1983, something even more disturbing happened. One day, Roseanne returned home to find a broken window by her back door. Assuming it was a burglary, she searched her entire house to see if anything was missing. But nothing was gone, except her pair of spare house keys. She immediately suspected Galliunas had something to do with it. Who else would break in just to steal her keys? She and her soon-to-be ex-husband were still in the middle of a custody battle, and their divorce was scheduled to go to court the following week. She figured he was trying to find more evidence to use against her. She called a locksmith who came the next day to change all the locks. With her house resecured, Roseanne slept a little easier. She couldn't possibly have known that it wouldn't be enough. October 4th was a warm day. The summer weather lingered even after the trees shed their leaves. 
Roseanne let the wind whip through her hair as she dropped off little Peter at daycare in the morning, then made her way to accompany Ayler on his job site inspection rounds. At 11 a.m., she picked up Peter, grabbed some fast food, and took him to ice skating lessons. Then at 2.30, she drove her son back home for a nap. That was the last time anyone saw Roseanne Galliunas alive and well. At six that evening, Detective Morris McGowan was on his way to conduct a follow-up interview for a case when the call came through from dispatch. An injured person report at 804 Loganwood Drive. It was only about a 15-minute drive away. He decided to check it out. A crowd of neighbors and curious passers-by had already gathered at the house when McGowan arrived. The detective approached the front door, trying to piece together the mystery. Before he could get inside, a weeping little boy ran across the lawn and fell into the arms of a man who had just arrived, Dr. Galliunas. McGowan continued inside. What he found was one of the most horrific crime scenes he'd ever come across. Paramedics found Roseanne struggling to breathe in a bedroom, dripping with blood. She had been stripped naked and tied to the bedpost with cotton rope. She was tortured and choked with a belt from her own closet. Only then had her assailant shoved tissues down her throat and shot her twice in the back of the head. All of it happened while four-year-old Peter slept in the other room. Coming up, Detective McGowan struggles to crack the case. Now, back to the story. Detective Morris McGowan was determined to get to the bottom of the Roseanne Galliunas attack, but things weren't looking good. Roseanne had been shot twice in the head, and no one knew how long she'd been bleeding out before the ambulance showed up. She was still alive, but it didn't look likely that she'd be able to tell them what happened. That meant McGowan was on his own to interview witnesses and suspects. Over the next few days, as he interrogated potential witnesses and anyone else connected to the case, a picture of Roseanne's final days started to develop. One of the first people the authorities spoke to when they arrived on the scene was little Peter. He'd been in the house the entire time, but when police questioned him about the incident, the child gave a strange response. He told them, the cookie monster did it. There has long been a debate within the psychological community about the reliability of testimony from children when it comes to crime. According to a historical review by psychologists Stephen J. Cece and Maggie Bruck, children have been found to be as reliable as adults when it comes to crimes committed against themselves. However, when it comes to witnessing other types of crimes, children often have trouble distinguishing reality from fantasy. This difficulty is likely what caused little Peter, who was watching Sesame Street when paramedics arrived, to claim Cookie Monster was the true culprit. Given that McGowan was fairly certain nobody on Sesame Street had committed the heinous crime, they turned to Larry Ayler, Roseanne's boyfriend. Ayler had spent the morning of the attack with Roseanne, but hadn't seen her since she left to pick up her son for ice skating lessons. When she failed to return his phone call by 3 p.m., he tried her dozens of times, growing increasingly concerned as the day wore on. During the estimated time of the shooting, sometime after 4 p.m., according to the medical examiner, 
Ehler's story started to get a little strange. He claimed that he was riding his bike around the neighborhood when a man dressed like an old lady, or maybe just an actual old lady, he couldn't be sure, had tried to run him off the road. Adding to the suspicions, it was revealed that Ehler owned a 25 caliber semi-automatic gun, the exact type that matched the casings found at the crime scene. He offered to bring in his gun to be inspected, and McGowan filed the detail away for further investigation. But the next part of Ehler's story is what really caught McGowan's attention. Around 6.30 p.m., Ehler had called Roseanne's house yet again, and this time, he finally got through. Little Peter had answered. Ehler asked to speak to Roseanne, but the child said she couldn't because she was sick. That was when Ehler heard a voice in the background telling Peter to hang up the phone. Ehler told McGowan that the voice sounded like Dr. Galliunis. Detective McGowan tried to take this detail with a grain of salt. Of course, Roseanne's new boyfriend would immediately suspect her husband, and he was sure the feeling was mutual. But Ehler wasn't the only one convinced Galliunis may have had something to do with Roseanne's death. Both Ehler's father and Roseanne's own family suspected him too. McGowan tried to remain neutral in his investigation, but he couldn't help it. In his mind, Galliunis had become the number one suspect. And the good doctor seemed to know how bad things looked for him. Not only did he refuse to say a single word to investigators until his lawyer was present, but when he crossed paths with Ehler at the crime scene, the first thing he said to the man was, I swear to God, I had nothing to do with this. When Galliunis was finally ready to talk, McGowan was disturbed to learn that little Peter had been the one who'd first found Roseanne. The child had walked into the bedroom to ask her to put on a videotape for him and found a scene straight out of a nightmare. His mom wasn't able to respond, so the boy did what he'd been told to do in an emergency. He called his father. Dr. Galliunis had been on the phone with his own mother at the time when he heard the click of another call coming through. He switched over and was shocked to hear his son on the line. Peter told him that his mother wouldn't wake up. Galliunis switched back to the other line and told his mother to call 911, then raced to the house as fast as he could. It was a worst case scenario. McGowan delved deeper, asking about the earlier part of Galliunis's day, and the doctor informed him he'd been at work. Between his story and accounts McGowan corroborated with his co-workers, nearly every moment was accounted for, except for one crucial window. During the estimated time of the shooting, Galliunis claimed he was taking a nap at his desk that lasted around 45 minutes. McGowan thought 45 minutes seemed like an awfully long time to sleep comfortably in an office chair, especially for a nearly 40-year-old man. The detective told Galliunis to stay in town as he continued his investigation. But the case became even more fraught two days later, when Roseanne was officially declared brain dead. Forced to make a difficult choice, Ehler and Roseanne's sister Paula gathered at her hospital bed to say goodbye. A nurse unplugged Roseanne's ventilator. It took about half an hour for the machine to go silent. 
Paula tearfully gathered her purse to leave, glancing back for one last look at her sister, then screamed. On the hospital bed, Roseanne was sitting bolt upright, eyes wide open and arms extended before her. A nurse rushed in and explained it was just an involuntary muscle spasm, totally normal. Still, Paula couldn't help but feel a deep sense of dread as she left the hospital. McGowan was also fighting a feeling of dread. The case felt unsolvable. There was just too much uncertainty and not enough evidence. He certainly didn't have enough to convict anyone at that point. But he was nothing if not determined. So instead of giving up, McGowan cast a wider net. He re-interviewed the neighbors. He ordered detectives to look into every 25 caliber semi-automatic weapon purchased in Dallas in the last two years. He even interviewed Joy Ayler, who he found to be nothing but helpful. Joy told him about the doctor's offer to work together against Roseanne and her husband on their divorce cases. McGowan was shocked to learn that Joy hadn't known about the affair until Gally Eunice played his surveillance tape for her. At the end of the interview, McGowan found himself wondering why Ayler had left Joy at all. She seemed like an intelligent, classy woman. The detective's confusion grew even more confused a few days after Roseanne's funeral. Ayler came into the precinct, asking if the police had gathered enough evidence to arrest Gally Eunice yet. In the course of the conversation, Ayler revealed that he'd reconciled with Joy. McGowan was happy for them, but now he was left with a new question. Why the heck would a woman like Joy take back a man who had publicly cheated on her? The detective didn't understand it, but he didn't have much time to dwell. Because soon, a new development sent his case against Gally Eunice into a tailspin. Initially, experts had estimated that Roseanne had been shot sometime before 4 p.m., exactly when Gally Eunice was taking his infamous 45-minute nap. But after Roseanne's death, the medical examiner who performed the autopsy came to a different conclusion. He ruled that the shooting had most likely occurred before 4 p.m. The examiner suggested a time when the doctor had been seen around the hospital by a number of his co-workers. This was compounded by the fact that Dr. Gally Eunice, Ayler, and Joy had all recently been cleared by lie detector tests. The doctor in particular had passed with flying colors, prompting the polygraph examiner to write a personal letter attesting to his innocence. With his number one suspect in the clear, McGowan was back to square one. The detective did everything he could to keep the case going, but by the end of the year, even his superior was telling him to shelve it and move on. And after a similar crime occurred in the nearby Casa Linda neighborhood of Dallas, a visiting expert suggested Roseanne's murderer might have been a serial killer. McGowan wasn't convinced of the serial killer angle, but by that point, he didn't have any better ideas. So he nodded his head and tried to move on, it started to look like the murder of Roseanne would forever remain a mystery. Until one day, nearly four years later, when someone came forward with a shocking revelation that cracked the case wide open. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. 
We'll be back next time with part two, where dramatic twists and new allegations bring an unexpected murder suspect to light. For more information on the murder of Roseanne Galliunas, amongst the many sources we used, we found Open Secrets, a true story of love, jealousy, and murder by Carlton Stowers to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Scott Stronick, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Danny Messerschmidt, edited by Georgia Hampton and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood, and produced by Freddie Beckley. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thank you.